Let us pray. Our Father, we come seeking a blessing from you through your word, by the power of your spirit, that you would open your word to us and us to it, that we might not be like those who look in the mirror and go away and forget what they look like. Rather, may we be those who see ourselves in your word, pray to be made more like the Lord Jesus Christ, and seek to follow him, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we come in our, for the benefit of uh, visitors. Uh, when I've been supplying over the last couple of years, we've been working through parables of Jesus that are found only in Luke's Gospel. And we come this morning to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and to the end of this series. There is, in fact, one more that I haven't preached. It's the parable of the ten miners. But uh, Philip preached that not long ago and we agreed that once is probably enough for the time being. However, in the providence of God, this is a very good place to finish these studies because it brings us to the most important question of all. How can God justify sinners? How can God, who is holy and good and who must, as the just judge of all the universe, punish sins, forgive our sins and declare us righteous, and instead of casting us into hell, bring us into his heaven. To use the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 and verse 4, how can God justify the ungodly? Well, you might be thinking, friend, that uh, you've got a lot of other things going on in your life, important things, and this is hardly on your radar, this question of how God can justify sinners. How can I say that it's the most important question? Well, if you hadn't rebelled against God, if you'd never done anything that you knew was wrong, if you'd never sinned, then it wouldn't be an important question for you at all. But we've all sinned, haven't we? We've all done what we knew was wrong. We've all come to that point of choice more than once where we knew what was right and we knew what was wrong and we chose to do what was wrong. And because we are moral beings accountable to God who must punish wrongdoing, God must punish our wrongdoing. And when the alternative to being forgiven and justified by God is to being cast into hell, eternity of torment, then the question of how God can forgive sins is quite an important one, isn't it? It's the greatest question of all. God is our judge and we are guilty but a God who doesn't punish sin is a, would be a corrupt God. And so how can God, who is holy and who cannot do what is wrong, justify us, forgive our sins, declare us righteous, fit for heaven, when we're not righteous? In our studies in these parables, uh, we've seen that the context of the parables that Jesus tells is vital for a right understanding of them. For example, the previous parable, the parable of the persistent widow, is often understood as giving general encouragement to pray. We ought always to pray and not give up. Well, that's true, but in context, as we saw uh, on a previous occasion, it's actually encouragement to a special kind of prayer, a particular kind of prayer. Jesus told it to encourage us who are his disciples to cry out to God for justice and not give up when we're persecuted. That's what he was talking about. 
This parable, the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, appears at first sight to have no context at all. Unless somehow it's connected to the parable of the persistent widow that precedes it. And when you consult scholars, Bible commentators, experts on this matter, we find that they're divided. Some say they're not connected. Some say they're connected by prayer, the common theme of prayer. And that's right, they are, aren't they? They're both about prayer. But I think at a deeper level, they're also connected by the theme of justice and mercy. That's to say, while the parable of the persistent widow teaches us that as disciples of the Lord Jesus, we may cry out to God and ask him to do justice for us against our persecutors, we dare not, we must not ask for justice for ourselves. Rather, we must always and only rely upon his grace and ask for mercy. We saw when we looked at the persistent widow parable that the key of it was hanging at the door. And this, the key to this in parable's interpretation is also hanging at its door, as it were. In verse 9, uh, he, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It's quite likely we've met this sort of person, haven't we? Some who, someone who thinks highly of themselves and looks down uh, on everyone else. And it may have been that we've even met them in church. Afterwards, that's where the Pharisee was, wasn't he? He was in the temple. He'd gone up to pray. These are people who compare themselves with others. And on the basis of that comparison, because they think themselves better than others, think that they're worthy of acceptance by God. But Jesus gives this true example. I think it's a true example from life, not a made-up story. Jesus tells it as a, something that really happened. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector I fast twice a week I give tithes of all that I get now there's much that's praiseworthy about this man this Pharisee firstly was it not a good thing that he was not a robber an extortioner that he was not unjust that he was not an adulterer or even a sinner like the tax collector of course it was And wasn't it a good thing that he was zealous to serve God and to try to please him, even to the point of doing more than God asked him to do? You see, God's law required that his people fast once a year. You can read about it in Leviticus 16.29. But this Pharisee was so zealous to please God that he fasted more frequently, twice a week. And... God's law required that only some things be tithed. And this man was so zealous to please God that he tithed everything. He gave a tenth of everything. Clearly, in the parable, the Pharisee's the baddie, isn't he? If you're looking for a goodie and a baddie in this parable, the Pharisee's the baddie. And yet his zeal for the Lord is commendable, isn't it? I'm very much afraid that his zeal, uh, his earnestness, 
puts my zeal for the Lord too often to shame. I, I feel ashamed of my zeal when I think how zealous this man was in his faith and his religion. What he said was true. He was not a sinner like others, and that's commendable. It's a good thing not to sin. It's a good thing not to rebel against God. It's a good thing to be zealous, to be in earnest, to try to do what pleases God. The sad thing is the Pharisee's zeal was not matched with knowledge. He was trying to please God, and he thought by doing good, he could put himself in God's good books. Secondly, was it not a good thing that instead of glorying in his own power, as though he had made himself righteous and zealous for the Lord, that he should give thanks to God for what he was? Of course it was. It's God that makes us differ. If, if we're not as sinful as someone else, it, it's not something that we take credit for. It's God who keeps us from worse sins. You know, we might think, we, we tend to think that we're free to do what we like. We can sin as much as we please if we chose to. But it's not so. Uh, we, the reason we don't sin as much as we could sin is that because of God's restraining power. Find an example of this in Genesis chapter 20. Abimelech, who was king of Gerar, uh, took Sarah, Abraham's wife, into his harem. And we read that God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And the scripture says, Now Abimelech had not approached her, that is, uh, Although he'd been taken into her harem, he had not engaged in sexual relations with her. And he said to God, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say himself to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. It was I who kept you. God restrained his sin. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Friends, if we should be lesser sinners than someone else, uh, we're not to take the credit for it. Not because we're somehow better or less inclined to sins than they are, but because God has graciously restrained us from the evil we might otherwise have fallen into. Friend, do you know that it's only the restraining grace that is kept, of God that's kept you from plunging headlong into gross wickedness? The Pharisee knew it. He thanked God that he was not like others. He knew that it was only the grace of God that had kept him and made him differ from his fellows and he gave thanks to God for what he was. And in that he did well. And so will we. Provided that our knowing makes us humble before God. The God who has made us to differ from others. And we do not use it as an excuse for sinning. To say to God, well you could have stopped me from sinning but you didn't therefore it's your fault. Oh no it doesn't work like that. God's not obliged to restrain us. If he does it that's an act of his grace and we give him glory for it. If he doesn't, we take full responsibility. We are responsible for our sins, not God. But you see, while there was much that was commendable about this man, God did not accept him. 
not in, in spite of his good character, in spite of his zeal. And we say, well, why not? Well, firstly, because he trusted in himself that he was righteous. He thought he had attained God's standard. He had done all and more than God could require. Although he knew that his righteousness was due to the grace of God in him, he trusted that he had God's favour because his righteousness deserved it. And because he regarded his righteousness as deserving, as meritorious, then he treated others with contempt. You see, he was proud of his righteousness, of his right doing, because he compared it with the doing of other people. He only ever thought in terms of externals, the things that can be seen in others. He didn't have any comprehension about what God required in terms of heart and soul. He thanked God that he was not a robber, an evildoer, an extortioner or an adulterer like the tax collector and that he fasted twice a week and he gave tithe of all that he got. But he never thought that God called for any inner righteousness, a right mind, a right heart, for good to be done from a repentant heart and love for God. And instead of being humbled by God's restraining grace, and he was proud of its fruits in his life, and he treated others with contempt, and God rejected him. So there's one man, and alongside him, Jesus sits another. The Pharisee foolishly trusting in himself as righteous before God, and the tax collector. And from this comparison, he teaches us the wisdom of casting ourselves upon the mercy of God as those lacking any righteousness acceptable and sufficient for him. Jesus said, verse 13, But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And the wisdom of this course of action was in Jesus' words, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the path of wisdom. But why? Why did the tax collector go home justified rather than the Pharisee? Why did God accept the tax collector and his plea for mercy and reject the Pharisee and his claim for acceptance because of his righteousness and religious zeal? And the answer is, of course, that God's way of bringing sinners into a right relationship with himself is by grace. It's through his free favour. It's not by works. It's not by our doing or by our character. David Brown, a, uh, a grand commentator, says, the a thinker, theologian, he says, the grand peculiarity of the religion of the Bible is salvation by grace. A salvation, however, unto holiness, not by, but unto good works. So while all other religions teach that we must become good by doing good, that we must become righteous by being righteous, by doing what is right, the Bible teaches us that we must be made good before we can do good. 
that we must be righteous before we can do what is righteous in God's sight. Or as Jesus puts it in another place, before we can please God, we must be born again. We must be renewed. We must be changed. We must be made new creatures in Christ. You see, although the Pharisee thought that he was following the religion that God had given his people in the Old Testament, he was in fact following the way of the world. He came to God and he said, in effect, look how righteous I am. Look how good I am. Look what I've done to please you. But his righteousness was not good enough for God because it was not perfect. And he did not go home justified. Although the tax collector was a sinner and knew it and could only come to God pleading for mercy, when he did so, God accepted him and he went home justified. Now, we live in a computer age and uh, in this computer age in which we live, many people who use software like Microsoft Word think that justified means you get the words to line up down both sides of the page. That's what justified means. Well, in the Bible it's got another meaning and it means to declare someone to be righteous. In other words, when Jesus said, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified, he meant, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home declared by God to be righteous. That is, to have done what was right in God's sight. Now, it's a good spot to pause and think a little bit because there's grown up in the Christian church the idea that justification is in fact a process whereby a sinner is made righteous and transformed so that when we're transformed enough and are righteous, God will declare us righteous on the basis of our own righteousness. And it's not hard to see how this sort of misunderstanding might arise. It makes good sense, doesn't it? How can anyone be declared righteous until they are righteous? How can God say to us, you have kept my law until we have kept his law? God says in Exodus 23 and verse 7 that he won't justify the wicked. Scripture, Isaiah 5 and verse 24, condemns human judges who justify the wicked. Isaiah says uh, God condemns those who justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Indeed, but even these texts show that in the Bible to justify means not make righteous but declare righteous. To justify the wicked doesn't mean to make the wicked into a good person. That would be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? To to improve somebody who was bad and make them into a good person. To justify the wicked for a reward isn't to make the wicked person good, but to take a bribe, to take money to say that this person who is a wicked person is not guilty. That's, That's corruption, isn't it? It's corrupt to let someone guilty of a a crime uh, let them go, saying they're not guilty. Uh, In Proverbs 17, uh, the scripture says, He who justifies the wicked 
and who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You see, to justify is legal language. It's the language of the law court. To justify cannot mean make good. It's not the opposite to make bad. Its opposite is condemn. Put it this way. When a a judge uh, says to a person uh, guilty, he doesn't make the person into a bad person. And when a judge says to a person not guilty, he doesn't make him innocent. It's a declaration about his status before the law. He declares to the person who is righteous that he is righteous. He has been accused of wrongdoing but found to be not guilty. And so when Jesus said that the tax collector went home justified, he didn't mean that God had changed his character. His character was the same as when he came in. What he meant was that the tax collector had stood before God, was his judge, and God had justified him. God had declared that he was righteous. We say, but he wasn't righteous. He was a sinner. How could God say something that wasn't true? Well, the answer is that God is able to make it true. And the way he makes it true is found in the Greek word that the tax collector uses for mercy. In the original, this is not the usual word for mercy. It could be a word that should be translated as be propitiated or be propitious. In other words, he's not merely asking God not to punish him, but to be at peace with him. In fact, this verb's found only in one other place in the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. The writer says, for, for surely it's not angels that he helps, that is Jesus, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And this is how God can justify the wicked who call upon him as the tax collector called upon him. And this is how God can have mercy upon us without being wicked himself. This is how God can forgive sins and declare us righteous without being unjust himself. He does it by sacrifice, by punishing our sins, not in us but in our representative Someone punished for us. And no doubt when the tax collector asked God to be propitious to him, he was thinking about the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They were not real sacrifices. They were only shadows. They were things that pointed forward to the real sacrifice, which is the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus, who offered himself to God, the propitiation for our sins. He's the Lamb of God, says Uh, John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Isaiah looked forward to his coming. He wrote of him, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the, the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it's because he was punished for us. It's because he is the propitiation for our sins. Because he is the wrath bearer, the peacemaker. It's because of him that God can justify the ungodly, the wicked, us and all who put their trust in him.
The Apostle Paul puts it in those wonderful verses in Romans 3 that God gives unrighteous sinners his righteousness and he does it through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The Apostle writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This, the apostle says, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, this is the gospel. This is good news for sinners, that God saves sinners from his wrath, not by asking us to do, but by asking us to receive his son who lived and died and rose again for us. David Brown quotes two for this sermon. He says, So natural is self-righteousness, the the pride of the human heart, that it's found its way even into the doctrinal system of the church and even into Protestant churches. Nor is it effectually dislodged in any heart save by divine teaching. Friends, this is what we have in this parable. It's divine teaching. Here we have Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, teaching us that God will only justify us if our trust rests upon him and his grace and not at all upon any goodness in us. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is God's word to us this morning. It's God's word to you and to me. And so let us pray that it will come to us in the power of his Holy Spirit, so that we will hear it not just with our ears but also with our hearts, so that our natural tendency to look to ourselves, to our own good works, to our doing what is right, to the things we do to please God as the ground of our acceptance before him is overcome and we always and only stand before God as the tax collector stood before him and pray, God, be merciful, be propitious to me, a sinner, and rejoice that our salvation is a free grace from beginning to end. May God give us to know that as our salvation did not begin by us doing good works. Neither is it completed by our good works. It's all of God's favour, his free grace from first to last. Philip Doddridge is a great hymn writer of the church. One of his hymns, he writes these words. Grace turned my wandering feet to tread the heavenly road and new supplies each hour I meet while pressing on to God. Grace, all the work shall crown through everlasting days. It lays in heaven the topmost stone and well deserves the praise. 
Let us pray. We seek your help, our God, to overcome our natural tendency to self-righteousness, to think that our standing before you must depend on how good we are. It's hard for us to humble ourselves before you, to pray as the tax collector prayed, to acknowledge our unworthiness, our sin, our corruption, and trust in Christ. Help us, our God, we pray, that the unconverted may be converted, and that we who believe may rejoice each day in the Lord Jesus, that it's in him we stand before you, accepted in the beloved. For we pray in his name. Amen.